Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where we continue on the voyage of the Chinese junk, the Qiying. In last week's program, I heard from Stephen Davis, who's written a book on the voyage, how the Qiying left Hong Kong in 1846 with a British and Chinese crew on what was supposed to be a voyage to London to display exhibits of China. But the captain Charles Kellett then had to make the desperate decision to save the ship and crew by taking them to the United States. After eleven months, they arrived in New York, where many of the crew left, and then on to Boston, where he hoped to winter over. But there was a bridge on the river into Boston, and the junk was too wide. So, as Stephen Davis explains, Captain Kellett decided, in the depths of winter, to take the junk on to Britain. In early February, Charles Kellett decides to leave for London. I mean, this is mad. If you read any of the books, they say don't even think about it before May. This is seriously nasty out there. But anyway, he heads off, and it is indeed seriously nasty. They get out there, and they've been about out about six days, and just as in Sebastian Unger's perfect storm,、uh, they they meet the same storm, what's called a North Wall effect storm, where the Labrador Current and the Gulf Stream butt up against each other, and they have eight days of horrific weather, which rip the rudder off,、uh, and they stick the rudder back on and sail on, and finally get to the English Channel. What a nightmare! Yeah, I. It, it, It's it's an amazing story. Here are these guys sailing a completely alien craft, with the help of their Chinese crew and captain. And it's the Chinese captain I most regret that we know so little about, because So Yin Sangshi, he must have been an amazing guy to be able to bridge the two cultures. He seems to have stayed loyal to Charles Kellett from start to finish, but. He's just there in the narrative as the guy who signs the crew on, as the guy who's loyal in New York, as the guy who's, from what I can work out, is still there in London.、Uh, but he just disappears. They finally arrive. So, did, what did they do? Sail down the Thames? No, no, God no. They got they, they got to the mouth of the Channel, and every sailor's nightmare. An easterly comes in, which pushes the the Keying south of its track, and it gets perilous close to some. Particularly dodgy rocks called the Minkies or Mankie、uh, near Jersey, and they avoid that and, and anchor in St Albans Bay, Jersey. Whilst Charles Kellett quite clearly negotiates for a tow to take him up Channel to London, because by this time I think he's had enough of trying to beat slowly up the Channel or just wait for a fair wind. So he gets the good ship Monarch to tow him to London, and they arrive there on the 28th of March. Off、um, Deptford, yeah. Just in time for the Great Exhibition. Three years beforehand, just in time for them. I mean, for the planning of the Great Exhibition. I think this is the thing that most、uh, most outrages me. Here you have this junk in London, and you'd think it would be the cynosure of eyes. In some ways, it was. I mean, Queen Victoria comes to call、uh, along with Prince Albert and, and and the young princes. Charles Dickens comes to call. He's splenetically rude. I mean, to read what he had to say about the Keying is it's it's an object lesson. In blinkered white racism、uh, and culturalism, and th- th- this is Dickens, and he's acting as a, a reporter, and he's a disgrace.、Uh, this is none of the of the social campaigner of his novels. This is someone just rehearsing every nasty stereotype about non-Brits and aren't our chaps wonderful that you can imagine. So he comes on board. Duke Wellington even comes on board, but nobody who's a, a sort of Intellectual mover and shaker seems to have bothered to come. Now we know that two of the most innovative naval architects and shipbuilders in European history were in London at the time: John Scott Russell and Isambard Kingdom Brunel. They didn't visit. 
the, the stereotype of backward, we can learn nothing from these people who haven't moved since the Stone Age mentality, just means we're not going to bother to go and look. And what really gets my pip, if you like, is that if they had bothered to go and look, the Chinese were building junks using the method that John Scott Russell was trying to get people to use to build steel ships. So they could have gone. And likewise, uh, the artists who were around, I mean, Turner was probably getting a bit old and doddery, but there were other highly competent maritime artists like E.W. Cook, William Huggins, his son-in-law, Edward Duncan. They're all there in London. Samuel Walters, the great Liverpool maritime artist, is doing a, a, a stretch down in the capital. Do they go along? Do they draw any, uh, draw any sketches, do any paintings? No, not interested. And the people who do do it, highly competent engravers like Eben Ebenezer Landells, Edmund Evans, who goes on to find, find and, and publish Beatrix Potter, who's a great founder of illustrated children's literature. Can they be bothered even to go and look at the junk? I don't think they, I don't think they did, actually. The ship arrives in 1848, mm. and then uh, what happened? So do, again, is it paying off the crew, uh, or are they part of this uh, onboard exhibition? Again, it's very, very hard to say. We do know uh, that new Chinese people were recruited uh, from anywhere in London that they could be found. I mean, the Chinese community in London at this time was actually very small, so these guys were often recruited off ships that had come from China. How many more? I've got no idea. And the data just isn't good enough to say how many Chinese arrived from the original, how many were added. We just know that some must have come from the original and some were added. But how many, we haven't got a clue. And she goes on exhibition in Blackwall. Not exactly the, the best place in the world, but a railway had recently got to Blackwall so people could at least catch the new uh, chug -a down there. It obviously was not pulling heaps of crowds after about two years then. I mean, we're talking about a huge amount of time that they were, they were prepared to devote to this. So they get permission to move upriver to, the, to, to Temple Pier, which is on the Strand, where they spend a lot of money to prepare everything for the keying to come along. It can only have come along, I think, because they either took the masts out or cut the masts down, because the keying's main mast is 33 metres off the water. And all those nice new bridges in London, Blackfriars, London Bridge, at most, at flat low tide, they're only about 18 metres off the water. So unless they lent it on its side and towed it through sideways, which seems a bit improbable, uh, there's no way the Keying could have got upriver with its masts in. So it may well be that by this time the masts were in such bad condition, uh, because they'd not been properly maintained or something, that they'd broken, or somebody thought nothing about cutting them down, uh, because you can always buy a new mast if you need to. And to get it upriver, where there might be more of an earning opportunity, obviously has to be towed upriver, goes on to Temple Pier, and then the locals realise that the keying in full fettle with its uh, nightly animation shows with gongs and drums and happy caterwaulings is rather noisy. So they get together and they have, a, they, they have an appeal, <laughs> saying, and, and it goes to court and, and the justice declares that uh, the keying has got to leave. There's an injunction. So the keying gets taken back down to Blackwall, uh, it's up there in 1850. There's some suggestion that by this time, the main investors had opted out. And the, the guy who was left, and this is a dark suspicion I've got, and I can't prove it, unfortunately. The guy who's left, Amanda in, her sing. he has become the captain. Now, 
one of the things we do know is that it was impossible in 1846 for a bunch of guaylos to buy a junk. Guaylos weren't allowed to buy junks. So the only way they could legitimately have got it out of, uh, of, of, of Canton, of Guangzhou, would have been to have found a local investor who would buy it with them as beneficial owners or maybe with him as a partner uh, and bring it down to Hong Kong and regularise stuff. So uh, maybe they finally sold out to him gave him a deal that he couldn't refuse because the guy William Cole who becomes the first uh, director of the V&A and who's one of the movers and shakers behind the Great Exhibition in his memoirs with a very shaky memory as he got old he, he mentions her singer as the captain uh, so maybe this, this, this Mandarin by this time had become the main shareholder uh, because there's a, they, they do redo one of the, one of the engravings of the key Ying with a new caption where Captain Kellett's name's taken out and the famous Mandarin Her Sing, purveyor of Her Sing's mixture of teas, um, is, is mentioned as the captain. So maybe that's what happened. But anyway, uh, it, it clearly again doesn't succeed and they're off back down river in 1850, late 1850 to Blackwall again. And I think at that point it's perfectly clear the writing's on the wall because within two years the ship is up for auction and from that point onwards it's all downhill. So did it appear at the Great Exhibition, or it just happened to be in London at the same time? Just, I mean, tragically, here is the Great Exhibition of the industry, works and industry of, of, of nations, and here is a wonderful living example of the works and industry of Chinese maritime technology, and it's completely ignored. The only wonderful thing about it is Her Sing is clearly an operator. I mean, he, he would have prospered in Hong Kong. He'd probably own half the place by now, because he manages to talk himself into being China's representative at the opening of the Great Exhibition. That, that there's, there's, there's this painting by, by uh, Henry Salus showing the moment when the Archbishop of Canterbury has just finished the prayer before the opening. And there's Queen Vicky and Prince Albert and all these Western geezers in their flashy uniforms and so forth. And there's little Her Singh, stood right in the middle in his fifth-ranked Mandarin's robes. And if you read the Times uh, description of this event... It actually says, and shortly after the Archbishop of Canterbury had completed the opening prayer, then the Mandarin Hsing, who came on the Chinese junk, steps forward and bows low to Her Majesty, who returned the bow, and he then stepped back into the... And you think, what an amazing scene. How did this guy... Because there's one newspaper that says he was a, he, he was a ship painter in, in Huangpo, and they didn't mean an artist. They meant he was a guy who wielded a paintbrush in, in Huangpu. And, and he's talked himself on board. Obviously, he's someone who has got good connections with the Guaylos. He talks himself on board. Maybe he bought himself fifth Mandarin rank. Maybe. Maybe he just told everybody he was a fifth Mandarin and had the clothes. But he, but he, he gets there in the Great Exhibition as China's representative. It's, it's just brilliant. And yet you can see from the Great Exhibition's catalogue that China's presence in the, ex in the Great Exhibition, entirely created by stuff sent back by bearing uh, the banking family that had a trading house in Shanghai, that is all that's there. It's about 50 objects. And wonderfully, to show the British appreciation of how these things link, there is a single display on a corner on the second floor of China and Tunis, those natural, cultural, and geographical <laughs> partners are—they share the same booth. Abroad, yeah, they're abroad. <laughs> but um, in terms of um, the keying itself, mm. where did where did she end up? 
Well, once she there was an auction which failed. Nobody was interested. So obviously they tried again and were a bit more realistic about starting bids. And they sold it. If, if my numbers are right, they just about covered themselves if what I think they paid for the junk originally is, is what they paid. Um, I think they managed to make enough money to at least break even. And then, it having been sold, it's towed around to Liverpool. So quite clearly, whoever bought it was a Liverpool interest. And by this time, there was a strong Liverpool-China trade. It was, it was to build further, but it already existed. So it gets around to Liverpool... And it's put on display, although there's no evidence of any money being taken. I can't find a Liverpool newspaper. It gets off Rock Ferry in Birkenhead and within a year is up for auction again. And that fails. And then so they split it and they auction the contents, which have disappeared. There's just two things that I think are possible remnants of the key ying. One of them may longer, no longer exist. A bit of rope from the key ying was given to George V uh, in the 1920s by somebody who, who, who worked for the dockyard where the keying was obviously slipped. But whether the Royal Collection still has this bit of bamboo cable, I don't know. I've, I've written, but so far have not elicited an answer from the keeper of the Queen's Collection. Uh, maybe they just threw it away. Uh, boring, bit of old rope. And, and there's a, an American museum, New York Historical Society Museum, that thinks it may have a bit of timber from the keying, but that's the only relics. And having sold the collection, none of which has ever appeared in auction when I've been looking, uh, they then sold the junk. And we don't even know what happened to that. There are about four stories, uh, and it's impossible to make a decision as to which one is correct, whether it just was left to rot, whether it turned into a pier by being filled with stones and rock and mud, uh, or whether it was broken up for research, or whether somebody made two ferryboats out of it. Uh, uh, except the two names of ferryboats that ostensibly was turned into are names of ferryboats that never existed. So who knows? It's, it's, it's just become a thing of myth. My thanks to Stephen Davis, the author of East Sails West, The Voyage of the Ki Ying, 1846 to 1855. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>